Okay, turn over to uh, the 37th chapter. <coughs> 37th chapter of Genesis, and uh, we're up to, have you, uh, did you turn the tape on? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's going. It's, uh, we're up to the uh, uh, Joseph now, and as we go through here, we're noting that uh, Genesis is a history that revolves around these select individuals that God was using to prepare the world for the Messiah and nobody else. Anybody else or any other country is important only to the extent that they come in contact with these individuals. Another thing we've noted is it is not the purpose of Genesis or the Old Testament books to give this perfect genealogical record that allows you to trace things right back specifically to Adam and know exactly how long you've been here and everything like that. That's just simply not the purpose of it. He wants to introduce us to the fact that the creation was from God, it was all perfect, uh, man sinned, man brought all problems, including the big problem of death, into the picture. Uh, God promised a Messiah, and now the, the unveiling of that scheme of redemption, as it's sometimes called, begins with the promise to Adam and Eve of a seed to come that would bruise the head of Satan, although he had his heel bruised in the prophecy in the process. And so we've moved through Adam and Eve uh, to Abel, who was killed by uh, Cain, Seth was given to replace him, and we come on down, and, and the next Mom, real important character that zeroes in on is Noah, and how that the earth became corrupt when the people of God, the descendants of Seth, began to intermarry with the people that were not walking with God, and became so corrupt that God destroyed, except for Noah and his family, and from God's standpoint, it was like removing a cancer from mankind. Uh, then we move right on up through Noah's son. You've got Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and we notice that the Messiah is going to come through Shem. And coming in from Shem, we see the account in Genesis of, of how the record is, is carried on down. And then we move right on up to Abraham as our next individual. And we see Abraham uh, comes from a background of idolatry, but he finds favor before God because of his, his faith in God, his willingness to follow God. Uh, God wants to take Abraham and remove him from among his idolatrous family and take him out in the wilderness by himself and to allow Abraham to have children and to teach his children and without the influence of his own family and all to bring his children up believing in the true God. And so we leave Abraham and we find the promise given to Abraham that, that God was going to take a nation from him, give them the land of Canaan, and then also a promise that all the people of the earth would be blessed through him. Then we read that Abraham had Isaac, and the same promise that was given to Abraham was given to Isaac. And then Isaac has Jacob, the same promise given to Isaac is given to Jacob. All right, now, these things that happen here, Paul makes a point in Romans that Isaac was not Jacob's firstborn. Legally, by the flesh, the firstborn was Ishmael, and that Jacob was not the firstborn. Jacob and Esau were twins. Jacob was the second one out. Legally, by the flesh, Esau was. So if you want to follow a legality uh, when it comes to the heritage and the lineage being passed down, it should come through the firstborn. And Paul makes a big point on the fact that God picked the most spiritual of the two and that the, the Messiah was going to come by way of a promise and God was using certain individuals. And Isaiah was, or Isaac was chosen to meet a promise that God had given Jacob was chosen as the most spiritual of those two people. And Paul later on will make a point in showing to the Jews that the Gentiles were not only fellow heirs, but that you did not get to be the people of God simply because of your physical lineage. And he'll take them back to those promises. That the promise of salvation comes according to God's mercy in a promise based on our faith. And that the real children of Abraham will be those that have faith like Abraham had. Okay, we saw that Abraham was so usable from God's standpoint because of his faith and his convictions that he was willing to teach his own children. Isaac, the same way. Uh, we see the emphasis on uh, marriage to people who believe in the true God. Okay, now we're down to Jacob. Uh, Jacob has his children. He now has 12 sons and a daughter. And we zero in now on Joseph because of all of Jacob's children 
the most godly is Joseph. Here again, another interesting thing. The lineage is going to come through Judah. And we're going to see some qualities in Judah and, and, and why God would actually pick Judah. But of all the children, the most godly specific child that uh, Jacob had was Joseph. And so here he is next to the youngest, but he chooses Joseph to work through here because he's just simply the best of the bunch from a spiritual standpoint. All right, now let's get into the 37th chapter. And we learn that Joseph, as we are introduced to him at this time, is a young man of about 17 years of age, uh, tends the flocks. The statement in verse 3, that Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than in his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. Now, sometimes you read a robe of many colors, sometimes a robe of long sleeves, sometimes a richly ornamented, uh, ornamented robe. Uh, if you'll go down here at the text, it says the meaning of the Hebrew for richly ornamented is uncertain. In other words, we really don't know the exact meaning of that Hebrew phrase. We just know there's something special about that coat. Now, most of the, the scholars that I've read from, in fact, all the commentators that I've got, believe that, that it was a coat of long sleeves, that the typical peasant wore a cloak that was sleeveless that he just threw over. And the well-to-do people had cloaks that had sleeves sewed into them. It was a much more expensive coat now. And so they believed that it was a coat of long sleeves that was ornamented. And the King James translators uh, operated on what they had at the time. They saw that there was just simply something special about that coat. And so the way they put it down was a coat of many colors. But suffice it to say, it's really not important other than the fact that it was special enough to cause a little jealousy. That uh, Jacob obviously favors Joseph, and the result is a little jealousy among, among the other brothers. Okay, Joseph has dreams. And the first dream he has makes him mad. Uh, he has uh, sheaves uh, rising in the field and bowing down to his sheave. And then his brothers right away interpreted that in verse 8. In things, do you think you will reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream. Okay, then he had another dream. And it says the sun, moon, and eleven stars bowed down to him. Again, he told the they told the father of this, and even Jacob was indignant here. And it says in verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this matter in mind. The interesting thing to me there is uh, we know this will be a part of causing them to have the kind of jealousy and bitterness and all, along with some other matters that they'll sell him into captivity. But it's interesting in that God gave him those dreams. And obviously God knew in advance when he told them about those dreams, it would disturb them. And it would serve, in other words, God wants him down in Egypt. And he knows how they're going to react to the situation. And so, and, and God is, he is going to be ruler of Egypt. And so God gives him his dreams. He tells, it makes them intensely mad. Uh, they're jealous. Uh, Jacob is already a little bit partial to him. And then not only that, uh, uh, Joseph himself uh, disturbed the brothers. He seems to be closer and even had toed on them on an instant they did that was wrong. And so they really, really disturbed at him. But the point is that we see God, with his foreknowledge, his perfect knowledge of every heart, knowing how they would react to this entire situation. So of their own free will, they're going to sell him into bondage. But really, God knew how they would react, and God wants him in Egypt, and he'll use this. In fact, uh, hold your place here in the 37th, and uh, if I can find it real quick, come over here to where, uh, let's see, look at, first of all, to chapter 45 and verse 8, when uh, Joseph has made himself known, uh, made himself known to his brethren when they come into the land of Egypt, look at verse 8, uh, or so let's back up to verse 5, latter part of verse 5. Uh, Barbara, read that uh, uh, 5, 6, five, on through 8, on through verse 8, 5 through 8. And now do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine <coughs> in the land, and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. 
So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Okay, now look at uh, the statement there. Obviously, they literally sold him into bondage of their own free will. But he said, God sent me that we see something of how God works through providence without tampering with anybody's will, but yet bringing his own will about. God knew how they would react to that situation. And he used their reaction to it. Uh, in other words, God didn't have to allow him to have those. He didn't have to have those dreams. And uh, there could have been other things that could have interfered and changed the pattern and everything. Joseph didn't have to be born in Jacob's old age where Jacob would be partial to it and could have been the very first one of the bunch. But he's born in his old age. Uh, he's born to racial. He didn't have to be born to racial. He's born to racial, the one that he loves in his old age after he's waited all those years to have a child by racial. And so Jacob is just as prejudiced as he can be towards Joseph. And, of course, that really disturbs the others. Then God comes along and, and favors Joseph with dreams. In fact, there's two dreams we have recorded here. There could have been more. Uh, that uh, he's known as a as a dreamer, and and there was they had a certain understanding con, from what I can gather from reading from Lamsa concerning the interpretation of dreams and things like that. But the point is, God didn't have to do that. Why? He sure didn't have to tell him that he was going to wind up ruler and over his own brethren and everything like that. And so God knew how this would how they would respond to that, and he actually used their response to get them to sell him into bondage. And so they did it of their own free will, but God's foreknowledge used it. Now, let's see, another place here. Uh, let me see real quick. 15, uh, 19. Is it 50, Jack? Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, Mark, read that please. Uh, 19 through uh, 21. Joseph <laughs> said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Okay, look at all that God's doing here. God is going to make a nation out of the seed here. And uh, God knows that this famine is coming on all the land. And so... In order to prepare the way, he sends Joseph down there, and we can only speculate what's going to happen if, if Joseph had not went and prepared the way, and there would have been nobody in Egypt or anybody else put away for that great big long seven years of famine that on, was on its way. Uh, personally, uh, again, opinion, it doesn't really matter. I don't believe that God in a miraculous way caused the, the uh, famine and then also the are the prosperity and then the famine. Uh, I believe that it happened as a natural order of things, and that God's foreknowledge was there, and He knew it, and He took it back. He took advantage of it. It could have been any number of years or whatever, but He knew it, and He took advantage of it. It really doesn't matter. He's got His people down there where He wants it, and we see that God. When we talk about God working through providence, it's God bringing about His will based on the information basis that God operates on. And, and as a result, able to accomplish without, in any sense, interfering with other people's will. So, and we also see something about the use of language in the Bible. That uh, God allowed something to happen, knew the reaction, but because he allowed it to happen and brought it about providentially, he will then make the statement that he did it. And if you didn't read the entire context, uh, the impression could be that, you know, God in some mystical way did it. All right, now, look at that. Hold your place where we're at in 37. And uh, come on over to uh, Acts concerning Jesus. And I think you have the same thing so far as the providence of God and how he brought about the uh, crucifixion and sacrifice and all. In Acts, the second chapter. Okay, look at uh, verse 23. Uh, let's see, uh, Nancy, would you read that please, verse 23 and 24? This name is handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. 
All right, now look what, the way that is worded. He was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. So they, with wicked men, the Romans, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, and then God raised him. But it was by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. God knew that when Jesus came and rebuked the religious leaders among the Jews and condemned all their sins, that they would hate him to the point that they'd want to take his life. He also knew that Rome was, would be in control, that Rome would have passed a law that would condemn the Jews for, uh, or not giving the Jews the ability to execute their own criminals, and that Rome's method of executing a criminal was through crucifixion. And so, based on his knowledge of how they would react to Jesus, based on his knowledge of Rome being in control, and the way they executed and all, knowing everybody's heart, God didn't tamper with a single will. He knew exactly what was hap would happen in the same way that you and I might forecast something that happens going to happen tomorrow by looking at the situation involved and saying that I know such and such will happen when they say or, or do that. And just, I believe as, as easily as we do it on something about tomorrow, uh, God looks down through the centuries and does it in absolute perfection. But again, even with the crucifixion, God didn't cause it. That God knew what they would do and so just like with Joseph, he knew what they would do, and he chose to use that. And in the same way here, he knew what they would do, and he chose to use the event all the time. It okay. could have been like on the famine that God caused in Iraq. Sure, sure, could be. It definitely, you'd have he it. He did at times, like when Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain. That could, but even there, it could be through foreknowledge of the situation. That uh, you know, it, it, it could be. It's, it's sort of like when Solomon prayed for wisdom. I don't believe Solomon's IQ went up. Uh, I believe that God, in His foreknowledge, knew the type of person that Solomon was going to be and everything. I, I think Solomon, the son of David, uh, an extremely intelligent individual and all, and Bathsheba. I, I believe Solomon was a very intelligent person. And, but and I think God knew in advance. And I believe the the way He works through providence is based on His foreknowledge. And as a result, can can work things out from that standpoint. But you're right; it would not have it. It, it could have been a, a just a miracle in that sense. But I'm saying it really doesn't. It doesn't doesn't have to be. And I know that. On the answer prayers, like Solomon's prayer, wouldn't have to be. Like he, sure, he had the intelligence, but the wisdom to put this knowledge into practice. You know, in order for God to answer the prayer. Well, of course, I guess he could have known that Solomon was going to pray. Well. But wisdom is the, the use of knowledge, and you gain wisdom through experiences and the way you interpret those experiences. In other words, we can gain information. And so then as we use God that could information, give him the experiences. experiences to cause him to be wise. Yeah. And he, could, he, he makes the choice Possibly himself. Possibly. Yeah. But I don't... Uh, uh, okay, back over here in the 37th chapter... Uh, and of course the big point on looking at all of that is to show that, that when you look at context God does not tamper with people's free will or free choice in the process of bringing his, his will about and he actually uses them because of his foreknowledge of the way they will react and of course we're going to see that especially with Pharaoh when we get to him okay uh, they make the decision the brothers do to uh, take Joseph they uh, finally decide on selling to the uh, Ishmaelites. And of course, the Ishmaelites, the descendants of Ishmael there. And uh, they will take them on down to Egypt there. And then come on into uh, the latter part of that 37th chapter. And we notice another principle of, of human thinking here. Uh, start with verse 31. Uh, let's see, who read last night? Okay, Jack, would you read from 31 down through, uh, through verse 34? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured <coughs> Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. 
Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for they, his son many days. Okay. Look at Jacob now. Jacob has sackcloth on, and he's mourning, and it's because he believes without any doubt that an animal has tore his son. And we see a good example here that I don't care how intelligent anybody is, your mind operates on what you believe, whether or not it's true. And so we've got Jacob in the process of crying, uh, in total distress, and as we're going to, we follow on through the story, he doesn't care whether he lives or dies anymore. He's down. He's he's totally down. And then uh, all the time, Joseph is on his way to becoming the one of the ruler, the top ruler in Egypt at this at this very time. And so the human emotions will operate. That means that uh, whoever is preaching, and I don't care whether it's a, we often look at uh, the Muslim religion or the things the Hindus believe or the Buddhist. Uh, and we say, well, how in the world can they respond to that? They respond to that exactly the same way that you respond to truth. They believe it's the truth. And if they believe it's the truth when they pray and when they worship, they get exactly the same feeling at it uh, that, that you do when you do what is right. And the same way that uh, uh, concerning uh, individuals and their attitude towards salvation, their attitude about the Holy Spirit, and I think their attitude towards the gifts, if they are honestly intellectually convinced of something, they really believe it, then their entire emotional system will operate on it as if it were the truth. And so from their standpoint, it, it is. It's just as, and so in this thing here, Jacob operates as if it is the truth, has all the feelings as if it really happened. Also, I think that it's, uh, that being the case, it's a good example for each of us to show us how important it is to to make sure that we've always got the intelligence in the lead over our emotions, that uh, uh, the emotions grab a few bits of information, uh, the mind will go after that information and really chase it down and, and examine it very carefully. And I think this is a good example of why it's very important to turn the intelligence loose on the information. Okay, in the 38th chapter, we get a little bit of a sidetrack. Uh, <coughs> Judah uh, marries a Canaanite uh, woman, and... Uh, has two children by her, Ur and Onad. Onad was a wicked man and God killed him. And the practice then, and apparently it was one set in motion by God himself because it'll be carried right on into the law of Moses, was that when a man died, in order to keep his name alive and his lineage, that his next of kin, if he had a brother, his brother, would have relations with his wife, and then that child would not belong to the brother, it would belong to the one that died. It would be considered his child. And so anyway, Ur was asked to father a child by Onan's wife. Uh, he refused to go all the way with the, with the act itself, and God killed him. That he, this was a law of God, and it's going to be carried right into the, the law of Moses itself. And keep in mind at this time, it's really important because all of the inheritance is passed on through the males. And uh, the, the males are everything, and the lineage, the name, and all. And so that uh, this was really important that uh, he go ahead from their standpoint and fulfill this. He didn't. God killed him. Well, Judah made a promise to Tamar that uh, the, when his other son grew up, then he would have relations with her, and they would have, of course, the main thing here we are so sexually oriented in our society, I think it's sometimes even hard to appreciate what's going on here. Uh, from their standpoint, it's not a sexual thing at all. Uh, the important thing is having that child. And, and you can see, even from Ur in the story there, it's not, it's, it, he's not concerned about the sex. He's, he's honestly concerned about having a child by her that was not going to be his. All she wanted was a child, and that's all that uh, Judah wanted was to her. he did go ahead and lie with her. Yeah, yeah, he just didn't complete the act. And that uh, then, uh, I'm saying that, that we think so sexual, like we'd say, well, this is crazy. Now he's promised his, his next son to tomorrow. We, we look at him, he's promised his next son to tomorrow, but the important thing from her standpoint is she simply wanted a child. In other words, Tamara is going to wind up playing the role of a harlot in order to have Judah deceive him into having relations with her. But her motive is not sexual at all. 
her motive is she just wants a child, and, that, and that's it. And it was the height of shame in that day for a woman not to have a child, and especially she wanted a son to keep the name alive. And so tomorrow then, uh, the son grows up. Judah doesn't fulfill his promise. And so what Tamar does in verse 13, uh, she was told that, uh, let's see, when Tamar was told that her uh, father-in-law, Judah, was on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enon, and which, and it no sense in naming the place there, and she saw that uh, through Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, and she had covered her face, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law. He went over to her by the roadside and said, come now and let me sleep with you. All right, he goes ahead and he has relations with her. But notice now, we see the double standard that is almost humorous here. Uh, Judah wanted to pay her, and of course, she still took the pledge that he gave and, and took off. And notice what he refers to her in verse 21. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute? That is the accurate rendering. Some of them have just simply harlot, but she was a, he thought she was a shrine prostitute. The shrine prostitute, the idols that they worship were fertility gods and goddesses. And so the shrine prostitute would have been a person that was there sort of like a priestess, and people would commit fornication with her in worship to that idol. And that's what she's there. Now, how caught up Judah is into this, we can only speculate. Uh, the indication is, from his standpoint, she was just a prostitute, and that was it. But they had the shrine prostitutes at that time. We see also something. Judah's going to wind up in the lineage of the Messiah. We see that, again, getting back to man being no better than his education. This is Judah's background. And he's living and keeping with his background and the information basis that he's operated on. It helps us to appreciate the statement that Jesus made later on that uh, because of your hardness of heart that Moses permitted this. They simply had, had not knowledge-wise matured to a certain level and there was things that God permitted that really was not in keeping with his will. Okay, now uh, later on though, it says verse 24, about three months later, Judas is told, Judah is told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. Uh, notice his attitude here. <laughs> Bring her out and have her burned to death. And so he goes to a prostitute, and that's nothing. But his daughter is guilty of this, and he wants to have her burned to death. But you know what's interesting now, in reading history, all through the, I mean, all the way up to the time of Christ, all the way up into the, you know, the present generation and everything, that men have gone out and done those kinds of things and accepted it and no, no problem whatsoever, but yet those same men have been ready to tar and feather daughters or wives or other females that would have engaged in like activity. And that's been the case all through history. Okay, uh, Judah though, she goes and sends the instruments and uh, the pledge and says, I'm pregnant by the person who owns this. And so Judah, at least we see his decency here. He recognized them, verse 26. And then notice the statement he made. We see something in the character of Judah. She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son, Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. And from her standpoint, she simply wanted the child in the same way that we noted that uh, Lot's two daughters were not interested in the sexual thing. They were simply wanting to have children to keep the name of their father alive. Okay, chapter 39 now, we have uh, Joseph taken down, uh, he winds up in the house of Potiphar, let's see, starting with verse 2, uh, uh, Louise, would you read that, 2 through 5? Okay. The Lord took Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found, found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. Okay, so obviously Joseph has God's providential care, 
He's prospering him and making his way successful all along the way. Uh, this stands out even to Potiphar, and he winds up and he's being appointed into a high position. Then notice the statement there in the uh, latter part of verse 6. Uh, or let's see, is it 7 here? Where it says, Joseph was, yeah, latter part of verse 6. Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. And he gives his reasons. And, and then he says in the latter part of verse 9, How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. And then, of course, we have the incidents where she grabs his cloak and hollers that he has uh, tried to mock her. And, of course, this will wind up with him being put in jail. But I think it's a good example that, uh, that to sit down and study, especially with young people, because in our society today that is, that is so sexual in its orientation, we try to leave the impression that this sexual thing is just some thing that cannot be controlled, and especially among men. It, it's supposed to be something that's just uncontrollable. You know, if a, if a man is around an attractive female or anything like that and has a chance, that's just what you can expect. And that's, that's the image that is portrayed all through TV and on the movies and everything like that. And I think this is a good example to show that and, and really, when people project that image of man, I think the one that comes out looking bad is, is God. Because God has given a law, thou shalt not commit adultery. He's limited the, the sexual thing to marriage itself. And so you've got God in the, in the position of giving these totally uncontrollable desires to people and yet saying that, hey, it's all illegal and off limits. And so Joseph is a good example that, that the sexual desire, just like the... Uh, the eating of food or anything or any other thing of like nature is something that can be very definitely controlled. And but we see that the thing about Joseph is that that the moral values that he has in his mind was so strong that he simply would not. And I think you see the importance of uh, uh, of when a child is young of laying certain values in the mind because the conscience operates on what you believe. And so he was strong enough here that this is just something he simply is not going to engage in, period. Uh, again, look at verse 19, the same principle we saw with Jacob. Uh, 19 and 20. Let's see, Barbara, would you read that? No, oh, Sandy, 19 and 20 of chapter 39. Now it came about when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, that his, that his anger burned. But Joseph's master took him and put him into jail, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in jail. Okay, so again, we see the same thing as with Jacob. Your mind operates on what you believe, and I don't care whether it's true or false. If you believe it, it may as well be true. And so it uh, says there that, uh, that he literally burned with anger. And so he believed it, and he became angry as a, as a result of it. Okay, uh, let's see. Again, the statement while he was in prison, verse 23. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care. He again, up at the very top, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Okay, now in the 40th chapter, we have the cupbearer and the baker. Uh, providence of God again they wind up in jail with Joseph uh, Joseph each of them have a dream Joseph interprets that dream tells one of them that he will live and the other one he will die the other one he will be restored and when it will happen and the other one he will die and when it will happen and it comes about exactly as he said and so a very insignificant thing and we can say well why is God doing something like this through Joseph but what has happened here, that uh, the cupbearer has something implanted in his mind. I'm trying to fight in my throat there a minute. The cupbearer has something implanted in his mind, and so that later on when Pharaoh has his dream, and that's going to kindle the memory he has of this and will lead to Joseph appearing before Pharaoh. Okay, in the 41st chapter, Pharaoh has this dream, and he has the... Uh, uh, gaunt cows that appear, and first the fat cows, 
and then the gawk cows, and the gawk cows eat up all the fat cows. And then he has uh, seven heads of healthy grain, and then all of a sudden, uh, seven that devour the healthy. And so he's perplexed. Uh, verse 8 says he sends for his magicians, wise men, and Pharaoh told him his dreams, but no one was able to make any sense out of them, out of what he said. So now the chief cupbearer remembers Joseph, and he tells him he, sent, he sends for Joseph. And another thing, let's see, another little thing here that's interesting. Uh, okay, verse 14. They sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. And notice he says when he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Hey, it's interesting that in studying people of antiquity, all of them wore beards. But the Egyptians, their high officials and all that, shaved the dream. And notice the response that Jacob or Joseph gives in verse 16. He said, I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer to his desires. All the way through here, Joseph will never take any credit. He never wants to be exalted in any sense. <coughs> And always he wants to make it clear to them that it's God that interprets the dream. Okay, verse 25, Joseph says to Pharaoh that dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. And then uh, he goes on to tell him the fact that, that he gave him two dreams of the same thing was an evidence that the thing was fixed in the mind of God. There was no turning back is going to happen. This was a, a part of Hebrew thinking and writing that when something was absolutely fixed and was going to be, it was repeated twice. Uh, Foy Wallace uh, makes a big point on this in the visions of John in Revelation, that you have a series of visions that culminate in chapter 11. And then you have a series of visions that culminate in uh, chapter 22. And I believe some have, you know, like applied the first to the Jews in Jerusalem, the second to Rome, and his conviction is that both applied to Jerusalem. And it's the same process that God revealing that every bit of this is fixed and, and set, you know, that there was no, no changing. Uh, you find this same concept in simple statements in the New Testament like barely, barely, or truly, truly. The double statement, uh, an acknowledgement in their thinking that it's absolutely sure. It was, going, it was going to be exactly that way. Didn't Daniel have two dreams? That were... Am I wrong? He had a... Uh, there were a series of dreams about the same event, uh, right, but a, a series of different dreams, and then the same thing was portrayed in different different ways in that dream. And just like one time that you've got the image with the head of gold being Babylon, and then coming on down to Medo-Persian, Greece, and Rome, and then you have another dream where you've got the lion and the leopard and the bear, and yet still referring to the same thing. Okay, uh, come on over to, uh, let's see, in this chapter here, the 41st chapter that we're in, uh, Pharaoh is very impressed. What Joseph says sounds very logical to him, and so Joseph is picked to be the next in command under Pharaoh, and he sets about, in verse 34, chapter 41, to take a fifth of the har harvest of Egypt during these seven years. So he's going to take a fifth of the harvest and put it aside. Again, uh, all we know from an archaeological standpoint is there have been great underground bins discovered in Egypt that was used to store granary. And of course, no, uh, we just know it's there. And uh, remember the Jewel Miller film strip that we used to show that uh, he pointed out that the archaeologist by the name of Woolley is the one that found the bins. And, of course, it is their belief that it goes back to this. And, and all you can say is, this is what they did, and that they have found in Egypt. The archaeologists have great underground storage places that, have, that were used to, to store, you know, a lot, a lot of grain. Uh, in verse 39, he makes a statement, says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, but see now that God has Joseph right up where he wants him. And yet without tampering with anybody's free will all along the way. And in fact, again, think about Joseph going to prison. That uh, he got there because of a false accusation, but what if Joseph had not been such a good-looking person? 
never had never been any problem in the first place. Uh, and so we, we saw his birth was in a very special way to, to Rachel, uh, uh, that in Jacob's old age, uh, he had the dreams, uh, and it so happens that he is an extremely good-looking person, and, and then that's wound up in this. So there's been any number of ways where God, knowing the reaction of other people uh, to the situation, has been able to set it up and get Joseph just exactly where he wants him. And again, from God's standpoint, I don't believe any more complicated than you and I are looking at tomorrow. Maybe probably not as complicated as us looking at tomorrow. Okay, uh, 46, uh, verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh as king. So now, when he reaches the point where he's really in a top position, he's 30 years of age, and of course, whether it's a coincidence or what, John the Baptist was 30 when he began teaching, Jesus was 30 when he began teaching, and the Levites had to be 30 before they were respected uh, and could actually begin to do public teaching. Uh, the Jews looked on 30 in the way that you and I look on 21 in our society. Uh, that we, we consider a person uh, mature, a mature man at the time the Jews would consider him a very young person. And, and really they, they looked at 30 in the same way in our society. Our society would tend to look at 21. Okay, uh, he, Joseph marries, has two children. Uh, look at verse 51-52, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. And, of course, that these will eventually be two tribes in Israel. You will not find the name of Joseph because it, uh, Jacob will give him a double, double portion of the blessing. And will, Jacob will actually wind up taking his two sons as his own two sons. And, given, and, and the purpose given Joseph uh, a double blessing, and both of his sons would have, have an inheritance. Look okay, at chapter 42. The famine has become severe in all the land. Uh, again, no problem for God. Uh, Jacob and, and his boys are not dummies. They hear that there's grain down in Egypt, and God knows what they're going to do. They're going to go down to Egypt and get some of that grain. And so they send down, but look at verse 4. Jacob did not send Benjamin. Benjamin now has replaced Joseph as the favorite. He's real concerned. And, of course, the only child he has left of Rachel, okay, who is, who is now dead. Okay. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, Joseph's wife, the one he married, was that Potiphar's daughter? No, it's Potiphar's wife that tried to get him to commit adultery with her. No, this is, uh... The daughter of Potiphar. No, that's the priest. He married yeah. the daughter of one of the priests. Okay, it's got an A on the end of it, so I wonder. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it turns out, we'll see, it's, uh, uh, see, the, on, on verse 50, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of Un. But he was one of the Egyptian priests. You know, uh, an interesting thing I think is Moses, when he uh, went out, he married a priest's daughter. Yeah. And then, and then now Joseph. They well, all seem to. And one thing you will see when we get to the law of Moses, the uh, the Levites that were chosen to be priests could only marry a virgin. And in fact, they could not they could not marry a woman that had been divorced or had relations and all, they could only marry a virgin. And again, this could have been true also among the priests, in other words, in the way that they were brought up and everything too, that could have, that could have been a part of it. Okay, in chapter 42, the brothers go down to uh, Egypt, and uh, Joseph is governor of the land, verse 6. His brothers arrive, and notice now the first dream fulfilled. And they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but, they, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. And then look at verse 9. Uh, then uh, Joseph remembers his dreams about them. I, I imagine at this time, because we see those statements later, that Joseph is really beginning to put this together right here about God being involved in it. And uh, he's heartbroken for a while, and a lot has happened to him. And then, of course, eventually he'll come to those conclusions we've already read, that God sent him down there. But I would say that this is the starting process so far as Joseph really putting this together, that this dream has probably been long forgotten, 
and now that's the first thing that pops in his mind when, when this event happens. Okay, um, of course, that uh, uh, he gives them their money back, sends them back. He really wants to see Reuben, or not Reuben, but Benjamin, he wants to see his dad also. And then uh, that he's going to send them back and tell them, though, he wants them to, he's accused of being spies. And then he, he wants them to prove their honesty by going back and bringing the brother, the younger brother, they say they've got at home. But notice their interpretation. Uh, verse 21, uh, let's see, uh, Mark, would you read that 20, 21 and 20, 21 through 22? Okay. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but he would not. we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. Okay, notice interesting there on their understanding, they haven't forgotten, and their belief in God's providence and reaping as you sow, and apparently this is something that has bothered them for these years, and now when this begins to unfold and the negative things happen to them, they're beginning to look at that as, as punishment from God. In verse 23, they did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. Okay, so he had Simeon, taken from them and bound before their eyes, verse 24, and then he gives orders to fill their bags with grain, put each man's silver in his cup, and give him back the provisions for their journey. Okay, they load it and, and head off and, and get back home. Okay, now, in chapter 43, we're getting ready for the second journey. Uh, Reuben, I mean, uh, Jacob is very reluctant here about sending uh, Benjamin and yet the brothers make it clear that they have no hope of getting anything without taking Benjamin with, with him. And so now, uh, let's see, they take Benjamin, uh, come on down to uh, verse 29, where they bring Benjamin and Nancy, read that verse 29 and uh, 29 and 30. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin and his own mother's son, he asked, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. Okay, and he washes his face. He comes out controlling himself and says, serve the food. Uh, notice the, the customs of that day. And here again, we get into a little another witness with archaeology. What you read here perfectly fits the customs that we learn from archaeology and ancient history. Uh, they served him by themselves, the brothers by themselves. Okay, so Joseph's eating alone, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to the Egyptians. And so everybody here, and again, when we go back and, and read in ancient history through the archaeological discoveries, we find this was exactly the case. By the way, it's interesting that uh, among peoples of antiquity, they were somewhat of a caste in their, uh, their beliefs concerning the you know, division of people and all. The Jew, for example, absolutely would not eat with a Gentile, nor would he eat with a Samaritan, uh, somebody from Samaria. In fact, he wouldn't even, go in, wouldn't even go into their house. Remember how shocked they were when Jesus was talking with the Samaritan woman? Well, the same way. When they sat down to eat, the Egyptians are not going, to eat with the he not going to eat with the Hebrews, and so all three of them in their own little group, and this is in perfect keeping with their customs of that day. Again, maybe helpfully, without excusing, help to appreciate uh, our ancestors in this country that, that we look back at the time of before slavery, and the black who would, or the white that would not eat with the black, and would sit them over to a separate table, and we think, well, how could they have felt that way at all? Uh, they were as much, many of them, a product of their environment and the way they'd been brought up and the things they'd been taught as uh, what you have right here. And it was these select special individuals that, uh, through their own study, rose above that environment. But it was really the, what they were doing, the same thing as you see right here. Okay, uh, Joseph uh, hides a silver cup in a... Uh, uh, the sack of uh, Benjamin, and of course what he's wanting is Benjamin to stay there. We look at verse 12, the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. They're really disturbed now, 
And Joseph, uh, verse 15, tells them, What is this that you've done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? Well, I imagine these brothers are literally beside themselves by now of all the, uh, the negative things and the bad things they've been accused of and trying to try figure this thing out. Okay, they go back. And finally, we reach the point where uh, Joseph is going to make himself known. Come on to chapter 45. Uh, he makes himself known to his brothers. And then in verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? His brothers were not able to answer him. Can you imagine their shock? And after what they had done, and all, because they were terrified at his presence, I can imagine. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother. And then he goes on. We've already read that passage where he lets them know that uh, in verse 5 and 6, that God sent them on ahead. And remember that Joseph is already aware of the fact that, that those dreams have been fulfilled. And he now has no problem in interpreting the hand of God in all these events. So verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Uh, again, I think something to that helps will help us not get bitter in life about even when things don't go our in the way we think they should or anything that uh, keep in mind that although we have free will and, and then we want certain things no God is in control and I think sometimes we have to watch out that we just may be complaining about a situation that God wants to allow to happen I think I'd feel that way hope I would if I was in a accident where I was hurt or had a serious illness or, or whatever it would be, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, that uh, God can allow or, or, not, or not allow. And we don't know, uh, we just don't know that the very situation that we think is terrible may be one that God is going to use in, in some special way that we don't know at the time. Okay, so God now, he, he mentions in verse 9, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. And he wants him now to wants him to go to the father and all, and to come down to the land of Goshen. Okay, uh, verse 14. United with uh, Benjamin there. They go home and talk to Joseph. And, I mean to Jacob. And what's he think now? Uh, verse 27. They told him everything Joseph had said to them. And when he saw the cars, Joseph had sent them carried back the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And now he was convinced, but what was his first response? Let's see, it was a little earlier. He didn't believe him at first. Uh, he did not believe him, verse 26. Okay. They told him Joseph is still alive. In fact, he's ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. So again, he's told the truth, but it doesn't affect him because he doesn't believe it. So a lie can affect you if you believe it. A truth can truth cannot affect you at all if you don't believe it. And that's true about the truth of Christianity. Uh, you can tell it to somebody, and obviously this sounds good to Joseph, I mean to Jacob. It's what he wants to believe, but he just doesn't believe it, so it doesn't affect him. But then they give him enough evidence, and he's convinced. And I think in the same way, sometimes we give the truth of Christianity out to people, and they don't believe it, and we get disturbed, when in reality, that that truth cannot affect their heart unless they believe it. And what we need to be doing is to give, give the evidence behind the truth itself. And that's what causes, causes people to believe it. And I think a good example there, being told the truth, a very sincere man told truth that he would honestly like to believe, but he just simply didn't believe it. And then when they gave him evidence, uh, he actually came to believe it and was ready to go off into the land of Egypt. So the mind comes to believe uh, as a result of examining information and we see the effect on the emotions based on what we do, what we do or do not believe. Okay, chapter 46. Israel sets out with all that uh, he has, uh, everything that was his, and he, he reached Beersheba. He offered sacrifices to the God of his father. And okay, God goes ahead and speaks to Israel in a vision and tells him not to be afraid and says, I will make you, here again, we keep running to this promise all the way through here. In verse uh, 3, I will make you into a great nation there. And I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Okay, the enumeration from this point on in that chapter is just under uh, 47. They go before Pharaoh, 
Uh, he wants the land of Goshen. Uh, he uses the fact that the uh, Egyptians uh, look with disdain upon the shepherds and so that uh, the land of Goshen was a rich and prosperous land. Lamsa has some very good comments on that, that Goshen was absolutely a very rich type of, of agriculture area and that there definitely was some thinking on Joseph's part to plan this in advance because that's where he wanted them and he actually used that to, to get his people exactly where he wanted them. Uh, come on down to verse 11. They gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramesses. And of course the mention of Ramesses helps us in our identification as we go, as we go to secular history and, and archaeology and, and read about the Ram, Ramesses and the city that was named after him. Where was that at? Uh, verse 11, district of Ramses. Okay, comes on, it continues on with Egypt and Canaan were wasted away because of the famine in verse 13. Joseph collects all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying. And so he winds up with their money, he winds up with their flocks, he winds up with the land, and then after he finally owns all the land in Egypt, he gives it back to them with the agreement that from that point on, they will pay a fifth of it to Pharaoh. And that will become an established law. Again, leave the Bible, go to archaeology, and we find that same principle of a fifth of it belonging to Pharaoh. Uh, really, what he did there is no different than what we do today. That uh, You buy land, but in reality, if you want to keep the land, what do you have to do? Pay property tax on it. And if you don't, they'll take it back. And so he got all the land for Pharaoh, but then he says, you can have it as long as you pay one-fifth back to Pharaoh. So really, it's uh, no harsh thing. It's the same thing that we do, and I guess every other, every other country does, as a means of raising money for the government. And so now in verse 26, he established it as a law uh, concerning the land of Egypt that was still in force today, and that, of course, as Moses is writing that. It's something that's still in force. Okay, in chapter 48, he blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, Ephraim is the youngest. He crosses his hand and blesses Ephraim and give him, gives him the main blessing. And again, we see the foreknowledge of God that Ephraim was going to be the largest. And this is known, but yet it doesn't follow, follow legality. And Joseph is a little disturbed at first, but we see something uh, that later on in the book of Hebrews, Jacob is complimented on this uh, for his faith in God, that he did something that he shouldn't have done only because he was told it. And so he blessed the younger over the other. Uh, again, concerning the God's providential care, come to verse 15 of chapter 48. Let's see. Uh, Nancy, would you read that place, verse 15 and uh, 16? And he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, May he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. Okay, notice one of the things he asked for, and we said that we'll notice this all the way through, how the angels were used in God's providential care. He said that uh, the angel that has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and all. So he, uh, rec this recognition... Uh, the angels, remember the New Testament in Hebrews 1.13, the angels are referred to as ministering spirits for those that will inherit salvation. We read the Psalms, David definitely attributed God's providential care and over him and concern as expressed through the angels. And every last one of these characters through definitely have the conception of the spiritual beings that God has in charge of their providential well-being. And of course verified by Jesus and the other writers in the New Testament. Okay, chapter 49, Joseph, uh, or Jacob blesses all his sons. There's only one we're going to look at, and that's Judah. Uh, starting in verse 8, and read through 12. Jack, would you read that concerning Judah? Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. 
Your father's son will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion who crouches and lies down, like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nation is his. He will take feather his donkey to a vine, his coat to the choicest branch, and he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Okay, notice a prophecy now of this Messiah that's going to come, and we've had identified now from his, of his sons to Judah. The scepter had reference to the, the rule, the authority. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. You're saying that's a parallelism, saying the same thing in two different ways. Until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. And so, the rule would not depart from Judah until the Messiah come, the ruler that it actually belonged to. If you were studying with a Jew, you could point out that the Messiah had to come in the first century or not come at all because Jesus come in the lineage of Judah and at this time in, in his life or right during that generation God literally conquers Judah he destroys Jerusalem he destroys the temple Judah is no more there is not anybody alive today who could trace his lineage back to Judah and so that uh, only at that point in time and so Jesus uh, uh, I believe it's Josh McDowell makes a good point in his part on the prophecy that he had to either come at that particular time according to the prophecy or he just simply is not coming by the way that's why that uh, the majority we think of the Jews as looking for the Messiah, Messiah the majority of the Jews are unbelievers and this is one of the reasons why they just believe the Messiah is not coming but in fact I was reading an article about a month ago on Israel and it pointed out that two-thirds of the population of the Jews were strictly secular. They were just simply were not religious at all. It was just, to them, being a Jew was a secular, national-type thing, just like being a German or something else. And they were drawn together because of their strong ethnic culture and beliefs. But that two-thirds of them really were not religious in the sense that they believed in the true God and that they believed that the Messiah was coming or anything like that. Okay, uh, the 50th chapter uh, ends with uh, the Israelites in the land of Egypt, uh, the promise that Joseph has made, and the fact that uh, uh, Jacob, Jacob is buried. Joseph buries him, has a part in it, just like he's told that he was, or God had promised Jacob. And then uh, Joseph is going to die and then there will arise a new king that knows not Joseph, and that's where it'll pick up in Exodus next week. And again, we've already read verse 19 and 20 to start with, the recognition by Joseph that they may have intended it for harm, but God intended for good. Uh, Joseph asked them that when they left to carry his bones uh, into the land of Canaan. And uh, again, Hebrews compliments Joseph on that statement, that he showed faith in the fact that he still believed that the land of Canaan was going to be given to his people, even though they were in Egypt at that time. And so on his deathbed, he's asking that, that later on when they leave, that they carry his bones and bury it in the land of Canaan. And he's complimenting for that strong belief in God in, in Hebrews. Okay, we'll pause there with Genesis, and then next next time we'll pick up, with, pick up in Exodus and probably cover the 10 or 12 chapters or so in, in Exodus. Anybody want to make any comments? never really amount to much they just become a people and they become a thorn in the flesh later on to Israel and there's a but it's interesting there's a, 
And we see one good thing that comes out of it. From the Moabites will come Ruth, the Moabitess, who will marry Boaz, and from that lineage will come on down to David and then the Messiah. So one of the Moabites winds up in the lineage of the so Messiah. It, it had to work in there then. Yeah. In other words, God definitely used it. Yeah. He didn't cause it or approve of it. But no. But the only reason for the, any people that are mentioned here is because of their contact with the people of God. And that, that's it. And so the, the Moabites and the Ammonites will become a force involved with the people of God as we go on. But the, the, there's many things going on that's not here. But what's here is, is to the extent that these people involve themselves with the people of God as he's preparing the world for Christ. Okay, let's go ahead and <clears throat> pause there for tonight. And we had actually, although we're up to 20, we'd already talked about Booth 22 where Abraham uh, offered his son. And so next week we'll, we'll finish up on that latter part with Abraham and then go ahead and probably cover about 10, 12 chapters next week. And remember again, we, uh, Joe, what we've been doing is covering it with the assumption that, that you know, everybody has read it in advance and also we can just go through and hit the high yeah. points. And that way, uh, try to go at it at a rate where we can uh, go through, you know, through the, through the Bible. Good refresher. <clears throat> Paul, something uh, that goes along with something you said tonight, you were talking about Melchizedek. In Numbers 22, uh, it talks about another priest that's outside of the, the Israelites. Okay. Uh, is it Balaam? Balaam, right. Okay. And uh, so you see that there's other priests or people that believe in God outside of that, uh, right. that group. Balaam was a prophet of God that... Wound up selling himself out, and God had to kill him. But you're right; he was a he was a prophet that that God used. And there again, uh, sometimes I think that uh, we haven't given credit to some of the information outside of that. But God is centering on this one family because He's preparing the world for the Christ. But there definitely now over a period of time, how many there will be, I don't know. But there definitely, as Abraham went into the land, that there were priests out there, and there were people that believed in the true God. He had Jonah going to Nineveh, you know, to, to tell them to repent. Right. Jonah went to, went to... And then interesting to me also that when you look at all the multitude of evidences for the inspiration of the Bible, that we come to the New Testament and we got this great, this great thing that no Jew understood was salvation by grace through faith. All Jews thought of salvation as a meritorious thing from works. And yet, they will back this up by go back, going back to the very beginning and showing that Abraham was told that he was justified by his faith. You know, not, and that everything else followed, but he was justified by his faith in God. <laughs> this study is really interesting. Going back to the Old Testament and looking how, how things actually, how the history got started and you know. all I really appreciate doing that. Yeah, I enjoy, I think really that there's no substitute for just going from Genesis to Revelation and Genesis to Revelation and keeping it up. If if other, if we could persuade, I mean, just like if all the various groups out there, whatever their name, would pick up these little old quarterlies and things and throw them in a, in a river somewhere and start at Genesis and just continue to study through we'd wind up with a whole lot more unity within the Christian family. Yeah, Instead of propagating these same things over and over, you just simply would have to see some things if you went through it that way. We talk about all the division and all in religion, and it's like, you know, it's hard to understand the Bible like, but it's really not too many studying that way. Most groups have little quarterlies, etc., that's based on the creed of that particular group. 